Good morning, Horizon Church. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Beth Guckenberger, and it's my joy to be with you on this Sunday morning, whether you're joining us online or here in the building. And I was driving here this morning thinking to myself, I've told you a lot of stories about my life over the last 15, 20 years that I've been coming to visit with you all. And I think this morning I'm going to start off with one that you will have never, you, you do, do not know and you would have never guessed is true. Um, when I was growing up, my, I literally loved to play basketball, which is kind of funny since I'm five foot four, so you can ch chuckle. But when I was in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, it didn't matter. The most important thing was just being fast. But by the time I entered into high school and my peers were growing much taller than me, the only way I could stay competitive on my basketball team was to learn how to be the point guard and learn how to shoot from the outside. And it was my junior year of high school, and we were in a Christmas basketball tournament, and I was playing for King's High School, and we were in a, um, the final round of that tournament against Mason High School, and there was about five seconds left in the game, and we were down by two. And my coach, Stan Keel, called a timeout and uh, said, I don't know how to make this sound pretty quickly, Beth, so I'm just going to say it like it is. They're not expecting you to score next, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get you the ball, and you shoot it up from the outside. I know you can do it, and let's just get three points and go home. And I was like, you know, I, I captain. Like, this is what five-foot-four basketball players live to have a moment like this. So we went back into play, and I got the ball right away, and I squared up outside, and I took a shot, and I missed it. And we lost the game. And we all went into the locker room, and I remember most that I kind of tarried there a little bit because I didn't want to come out and see the faces of my friends' parents. Whether I thought that they were going to be disappointed in me or have a look of pity, I'm not sure what I thought. I just knew I didn't want to face any of them. So I waited till I thought everybody was gone, and I just, uh, when it was quiet, I went into the to the gym where I knew my dad was waiting to take me home and he was just shooting around with a basketball there and when he saw me come through the doors, he bounced past me the ball and pointed on the floor to where I had missed the shot and told me to square up. And I got the ball and I made the basket because there was no pressure on me at that moment and he rebounded my ball and passed it to me again and said, do it again, which I thought was kind of mean in that moment. And I squared up and I shot that ball and I made it again, of course, no pressure. And he rebounded and he told me to do it again. And somewhere around the third time, I started to cry all the emotions of that game kind of coming out in that moment. And as soon as I started to cry, he came over and put his arms around me and just whispered to me, I, I just wanted to make sure tonight when you went to bed that you remembered what you were capable of. Today we're going to have a conversation about there are moments in our life when we blow it. And sometimes they're unintentional. Like that moment was, un I didn't do anything wrong in that moment necessarily, but I felt like I blew it. And there are other moments where we do things wrong and we blow it because we've made poor choices and we've kind of messed something up really bad. And we're going to talk about what, what, what does our Heavenly Father look like when he's looking at us in those moments? What does he say? What does he want to remind us of? Are we held accountable for what we do in our very worst moments? And what do we do in those moments? Do we, do we hide? Do we get defensive? Do we look at other people? Do we experience shame? What do we think Jesus might be saying to us as we're on our way out of that metaphorical locker room? What does he want to say? Well, as we 
talk this uh, final week about live and learn, let's see what Jesus says. If we have the right idea, if we're stuck in that deja vu thinking. Join me in the book of John chapter 8. In the very beginning it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came into the temple and all the people came to him. And in case you don't have that impression of Jesus, I want to make it really clear. He was a people gatherer. People wanted to be around him. And at this point in the story, he was saying some very radical things. And it was attracting people who were looking for a different kind of world than the one they were finding themselves in. So he had all these people around him. And, they, and he sat down and he began to teach them. And what's he teaching them? He's teaching them, hey, I have another way to live. I have another kind of kingdom I want to talk to you about than the one you find yourself in. And the scribes and Pharisees, these really religious people, came in through that crowd and they brought with them a woman who was caught in adultery. And when they had set the woman in adultery in the midst, I just want to pause for a minute. Make sure you paint that picture in your mind. Jesus, surrounded by a crowd, curious what he's going to say. These are religious men dragging this woman caught in adultery through the crowd, setting her right in front of him in that midst. First of all, when I read this passage, I think to myself, if she was caught in adultery, there was a man in that story. Why didn't he get drug out in front of everybody? Like, where's he? And legally speaking, the standard of evidence was very, very high for this crime. It wasn't enough to just see two people leave a room or even see two people laying in a bed together. You actually had to see the sexual act take place. So under those kinds of conditions, evidence of adultery would be almost impossible to prove unless... What if it was a setup? What if somehow that man was in on it? And I just want you to imagine for a moment the possibility that that woman has been drugged in front of that huge audience, which she was not counting on, and it's dawning on her that something that she had just been participating in that possibly had been real to her, she's recognizing now, uh, uh, maybe I was a pawn in a conflict that these people have with this guy. I don't, uh, what, where am I? And why are all these people looking at me? She's caught in her very, very worst moment. These religious men said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, this is, this is the world that had been created, this Old Testament understanding where the world had been created. Now Moses commanded us that this kind of thing should be stoned. So what do you say? And that's the question I want you to have rolling around in your mind when you leave the building today or when you shut off your screen. If you're watching us online, what do you say? Like, what do you say, Jesus? What does he say when we get caught in our worst thinking, our worst actions, our worst words out of our mouth? What's he say? If I haven't met you yet, I've worked for an organization called Back to Back Ministries for 25 years. The first 15 of years of that 25, I lived in Monterey, Mexico, and we hosted a lot of mission trips. I've had a lot of mission trips from this church come and spend time with us there. And I was hosting this man from Oklahoma City. His job was that he was in charge of all the youth pastors in a very large church system that I think today has almost 30 different churches in it. He's, he had a position of incredible responsibility. And he was coming to check us out just to see if our place was a good place for them to send their youth on mission trips. And one night at dinner, I was just asking him, like, hey, what's your story? <clears throat> what's God taught you? And he kind of looks at me, like, probably assessing if he can trust me. And then he said, well, 
I was in youth ministry for a really long time and I rose in the ranks of that field. And then I made a really bad choice. And because of that choice, I lost my job and I lost my marriage and I lost the respect of my children. And he said, in the aftermath of that choice, I got into some accountability relationships with people. I entered into a season of emotional and spiritual healing. I left full-time ministry, began to sell insurance, <clears throat> but I missed the church. I missed it deeply. So after several years and so the, the, the kind of healing that was needed in my story had, had taken place, I just decided to put together a resume and write a cover letter that detailed my testimony and what I had been doing in my story. And I just stuck it on a job board somewhere and I thought, hopefully some church somewhere will let me do something. I just want to get back into church, get back into that kind of work. He's like, imagine my surprise when this giant church where I'm working today called me in for an interview. And it's a big enough system as I was going through the process that I thought to myself, I bet somewhere along the line that cover letter got separated from that resume. And now the people that are making the decisions to advance me are just paying attention to my history and not to my, to my whole story. He said, then I find myself finally in the office of this senior pastor and he offered me the job and I wanted it with everything in me to say yes, but I thought I got to tell him, make sure he knows exactly what he's getting into. So I said to him, is there any chance that you haven't read the cover letter? Can I tell you about what has been going on in my life the last five years? And that senior pastor said, no, I read it. I know exactly what's going on with you. Here's the deal. I have learned in life that most people have a broken season and I like to hire people on the other side of their broken season because I find it makes them a better minister of the gospel of grace. And I said to him, well, that's why your church is so big, by the way, because who wouldn't want to spend a Sunday morning with somebody like that? Who's exuding the kind of grace that we're going to see put on display in this story? <laughs> There's an understanding that Jesus is going to display in the story that this woman who has been drug out in front of him is more than the sum of the choice that she has just made. She is a person with a whole past that led her there. And more importantly, she's a person with a whole future ahead of her. And today in our culture, we are so quick to cancel people, to give up on things, to quit, to throw people away. And we have to ask, like, what does grace look like? There's a verse that Paul will write later in the New Testament, and he's reflecting the kind of grace that Jesus is going to put on display here in this passage. And he says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if someone is caught in a sin, you, you who live by the Spirit, you who look like me, you like my family, listen, if you catch someone in sin, kids, then you should restore that person gently. That's what Jesus looks like. I know you've been in the book of Proverbs and it says in chapter 10 of the book of Proverbs, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. What do we have to live and learn from the example Jesus is going to put on display for us? What do you say, Jesus? <laughs> if he said something like, um, let her go, it would seem like he was breaking the law of Moses and relaxing public morals. And if he said, oh, go, go, go ahead, execute her for the crime of adultery, then Jesus would seem harsh and cruel, something that he's not. He's always had this other kind of way. There's a Hebrew phrase, tikim alam, that represents 
the heart and thinking of God. It literally means in Hebrew to English to heal or repair the world. It's this Jewish principle that means if you see something crooked, straighten it. If you see something broken, engage in its healing. If you see something hard, enter into it. Go and see what you might be able to do. And I just want to make sure that people, that we continue to hear the teaching that when we see crooked paths, we're not supposed to judge them. We're not supposed to shake our head or shake our finger. We're not, supposed to, we're not supposed to think, well, I'm so glad I'm not like them. I can't believe they got that way. I always kind of thought that about them. Instead, we're supposed to say, what's my part in this? What might I be able to do to make this crooked road straight? Faith, this kind of faith, it's not a head thing. It's not something that we just learn in our brains. This, is, this kind of truth is something we literally metabolize and then it changes the way we act. And if it doesn't change the way we act, we probably haven't actually metabolized it. They'll say in the next verse, this they said, the, what do you say, Jesus? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. First of all, for sure he heard, right? He's God. And when Jesus does things in our Bibles that we don't, like, understand, that's, like, kind of not normal, like getting accused of, like, getting challenged by somebody and then stooping down and writing in the dust. Here's what the answer to every one of those kind of strange passages is. Somewhere else in our Bible, he's giving context for that text. If he's writing in the dust, then that means somewhere in our Bible they talk about dust writing. Think about another thing that he says that we kind of ponder and shake our heads at where he says that we have to forgive our enemies seven times 70. We're supposed to forgive people seven times 70. I mean, any of you who have been married knows that we can get to 490 in the first few months, right? I mean, like, it's not actually a math problem. What, what Jesus is referencing when he says we're to forgive seven times 70 is a story he'll tell in the first book of the Bible a book called Genesis, he's referencing a story that a man named Lamech says. He says, hear my words, I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for injuring me. If Cain, another man, is avenged seven times, then I'm going to be avenged 77. When Jesus says we're to forgive seven times 70, he's saying, hey, if the sons of man are known for vengeance seven times 70, then my kids are going to be known for forgiveness seven times 70. It's a principle, not a math problem. So, I mean, I think it to myself, if he's writing in the dust, where is it that we learn about dust writing? We learn about it in Jeremiah chapter 17, where he says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel, and all who forsake you will be put to shame. And these men knew a little something about shaming. They were in the act of shaming someone in that moment. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they've forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. The kind of men that were dragging this woman up into this crowd. These were these religious men who knew their Bibles and Jesus was counting on it. And I've heard lots of messages where people say that Jesus wrote down in the dust because he's trying to draw attention away from the woman. Well, I'm sure it drew attention away from the woman. But really Jesus is counting on them knowing that text and not wanting their names to be written in the dust because they don't want to be shamed and forsaken. The very thing that they're doing themselves. He's always a teacher. 
And he had a bunch of audiences that were listening to him. He was teaching that woman, I see you. And he was teaching those accusers, look into your own heart. And he was telling all the rest of them that were watching and any of us that want to read the book of John, he was telling us something. What's he trying to teach us in this passage? I think some of us, he's telling us to put down our stones, to give the kind of grace that we have received. I think to others of us, he's telling us, you are not the sum of your acts, both good and bad. Your identity isn't in what you have done. So as he's doing all that teaching, they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again. I just, I want to stop for a moment, and I just want you to picture that like it's a movie scene in your mind. You got the woman here who'd been drug out and a whole crowd watching, and he bends down to right in the dust, and then he stands up and he looks right at those accusers. And what do you think that felt like to them to have Jesus stand up to them, look right at them? In our trauma teaching, we talk about anger. I just want to be really clear, like, Jesus is not afraid of angry people. He was not afraid of this angry mob. In our trauma training, when we talk about anger, we talk about how anger is a secondary emotion. It is always sitting on top of the primary emotion of fear. So every time we're angry, we're actually afraid. We just show that anger in different ways, passive and aggressive, depending on our temperament. And we have a choice when someone comes in at us hot and angry. We can either match that anger, right? We can get bigger or we can withdraw. What if there was a different kind of way? What if instead of when someone comes angry, we come right back at them? What if we think, I'm a detective here, and I'm trying to figure out what are they afraid of that's causing this anger, and how might I minister to that fear? Uh, when my husband and I moved back from Mexico to the United States, we decided to build a house to fit our unusual family. And one night after dinner, Todd pulled out the, the house plans to show me that we had a guest bedroom that we had already put into the plans and he thought that that guest bedroom should have a bathroom and I was like I don't think we need a bathroom in there because we have all these other bathrooms in the house and if somebody wants to go to the bathroom they can go here or they can go there like I don't think that bedroom needs a bathroom he's like I think it'd be a really good idea you know we have a lot of long-term guests missionaries staying with us and stuff I think they'd like to have their own bathroom and I, I don't know how conflict happens with you and your significant other but one minute we were talking about bathrooms and the next minute I was talking to him about his mother And Todd was, uh, he knows this training about anger and fear. And he's looking at me like, I, I can see you're angry. I just can't figure out what you're afraid of. What are you afraid of about a bathroom? And in that moment, I was not like, oh, let's just talk about what my fears are. You know, I think that sounds like a great idea. I mean, in that moment, I'm like, I want to win, right? I'm in a fight. I got adrenaline, all kinds of stuff in me. But I knew he was right. And so I just took a minute and I was like, oh, I'm afraid we can't afford it. He's like, really? That's your fear? And he gets out his little spreadsheets and shows me all the numbers. I'm like, oh, and why he thought we could. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. Okay, good. I'd like a double sink and brush nickel in there then, please, you know. <laughs> I mean, Jesus saw these men coming at him really angry. And what do we think they were afraid of? Well, I think they were afraid of him. I think they were afraid of the way that he was changing their system of righteousness and turning upside down something that they were holding on to. And he knew that. And he wanted to get to their fear. He wanted to minister to them. 
He sets us that kind of example. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and he said, um, all right, but let's let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. And I just want you to see that detail that he stood up and he looked him in the eye. I, I, think, I think the other thing I want you to know is that he's not afraid to stand up to our accusers. And the Bible talks about this funny little idea that we have a spiritual enemy, right? Sometimes we call him Satan. Sometimes we call him the devil. I often call him our enemy. And the Bible will use words like he's an accuser of the brethren and he's a liar and he's a father of lies. And if you see any kind of like media or art depiction of this warfare between good and evil, it might be like a demon, on, like a devil on one side and an angel on the other shoulder. Or sometimes there's beautiful art depictions of some kind of cosmic wrestling match between darkness and light or something. But it, my, my problem with all of that depiction is it tends to make those two characters look like they're the same size. And these are not equal rivals. This is not the same size. In fact, in one passage, there's a story about when Jesus is going to be arrested in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane before he's going to be crucified. And the men that were arresting him, the soldiers, asked him his name. Like, let's just double check we got the right guy. What's your name? And he answers, Yahweh, I am. And it tells us in our Bibles that when he said his name, the soldiers fell down. Like, that's what it feels like to be face-to-face with him and on the wrong side of it. Like, you want to accuse him? He's, he is nothing but power. And this... This father of lies, this accuser, is always whispering stuff to us. That we're not enough, or that we're too much, or that what we've done has taken us out. Or I don't know what that father of lies whispers to you, but we can hear it and forget who the author is and hear it through someone else's mouth or hear it in our own mind and start to believe it as something that is true. And it can, it can arrest a plan that God has for us. That was certainly true for me. In 2005 and 6, I was asked by a publishing company to write down some of the stories of what was happening to us and our family in Mexico. And when, the, when they first asked me to do it, I said, no, I'm not doing that. I don't have time. Then the next year, they asked me again. I said, no, I, don't, I can't do that. I don't, I'm not going to do it. Finally, the third time, a mentor of Todd's and mine had gotten involved in the story, and he was pressing me one day, asking me about why, like, why don't you want to do this? This kind of sounds like you. And I was like, I don't have any time. And he's like, well, we tend to make time for the things that we want to do. And I said, okay, well, I guess honestly, I just don't think I'll be any good at it. And he said, well, I bet they have professionals to help you with that kind of thing. And then I looked around at all the other staff that were kind of mingling around where we were, had been talking. And I said, well, I mean, all these people have all the same kind of stories. Why do I get to write down mine? He's like, well, because they asked you to. And then I said, the next thing I said was, nobody wants to see that crown up on my head. And he was like, what are you talking about? And as, as soon as I said that, I put my hand over my mouth. I'd never said anything like that before. But I had this flashback in my mind of a story from 15 years before that. Put yourself in the fall of 1990, if you were around at that time. I was a high school senior, and I was a cheerleader for my high school football team. 
And it was homecoming weekend, and I had been elected to homecoming court, which meant at halftime, we changed out of our uniforms into these, like, princess dresses, and we rode around in the back of a car. And then at the end of that, like, little exercise, they called my name as the homecoming queen. And if you remember anything about 1990, we had some big hair back then, right? <clears throat> I had a perm and a bunch of hairspray and, my, and bangs, and my hair was big. And so when they put that crown on my head, it got all covered up by all that, that hair. You couldn't even see it. So when that was over, I went back in the bathroom to change out of my dress and put my cheerleading uniform back on. And when I looked one more time in the mirror, I never even saw the crown to take it out because you couldn't see it with all the hair I had going on. And I went out down the path to go back down to the sideline, and I ran into this girl. She was kind of like a fremony, if you know what that means. And um, she just looked at me. She's like, oh, Beth, get that thing off your head. Nobody wants to see that crown up there. And now as an adult, I realize... She was an adolescent and her friend lost, and what she said had a lot more to do with her than it ever had to do with me. But somewhere inside of me, I coded that as shame. And I was going to say no to something that 13 books later, I love being an author. I cannot believe I almost said no to that. Because I was, I was, a, I was listening to the accuser and someone who was lying to me. And even though those words came out of someone else's mouth, there was an author of those words. And he wanted me to not do that which that God had planned. And it might have felt like to that lady, I just, again, just trying to imagine myself in that movie scene of what that was like. It might have felt to her like the accusers that had drug her out there had a bunch of power. Because they did have perceived power in that system. But what I love is that Jesus stood up to them. He, he doesn't just have power, Jesus actually is power, right? So when he stood up to that accuser, they have nowhere to go. In fact, there's a pair of passages in our Old Testament. It comes out of the book of Exodus. So the story in the book of Exodus is God's kids at this point were enslaved by the Egyptian power, Pharaoh, and God tells a man in, in his family, his name Moses, like, hey, listen, I want to use you to get Pharaoh's attention so we can free my kids from slavery. And in that battle for God's kids to get out of slavery, there's a series of plagues. And one of the plagues is in Exodus chapter 10. It's called the plague of darkness. And in that plague, it says that darkness fell so thick on the land that they could feel it. That's kind of what I imagine this lady must have felt like. Like darkness had been so thick in that space, she must have felt it. I don't know if you can think of a, a moment in your life where it just was dark. It might have been a conflict. It might have been some kind of confusion. It might have been a season of temptation. You could just feel darkness. But the passage goes on to say that everywhere that God's kids were, light was among them. So what does that look like? Like, like, like little human lightning bugs. Like what does that look like? But that's the promise that's true for us today. If we have Jesus... In our life, and we identify as part of his family, there is no place too dark that you don't bring light with you. And God was teaching everyone watching, this is what you do when darkness comes on the land, so thick you can feel it. Two chapters before that, in Exodus chapter 8, Pharaoh will say to his magicians, could y'all come up with a plague as cool as the plagues that the God of Moses is doing so that our people can understand we're as powerful as the God of Moses. And those magicians pretty much come back and say, hey, listen, all of our power combined 
does not compare to the power that's being displayed through the finger of their God. These are not equal rivals. It doesn't matter how many of them are bringing this to Jesus. He is power, and he's going to put it here on display. Verse 9, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, what they heard was, you know, whoever has never sinned, throw the first stone. Did I finish that part? Let's finish that. All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down to write again in the dust. And those who heard that being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest. Let's hope the older we get, the smarter we are about this kind of thing. And the more grace we recognize has been given to us and the more grace we turn around and give to others. Even to the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman was standing in the midst. And now we're back to the beginning of the story. Like, What do you say, Jesus? She's all alone with him. What do you say? What do you say? What do, you, what do we think he's going to say to her? Now that the accusers have left... What what does she say? Well, here's the kinds of things we know he's saying to her because these are the kinds of things he left a written record of us for. So in any of those moments we find ourselves, we can open up our Bible and understand, what was he he saying to us? He's saying things like, uh, I'm faithful and I am just and I will forgive your sins. He says things like, "I I, I am not here to condemn the world. I'm here so that the world might be saved. He says things in here like, I will have compassion on you and I will have mercy on you and I will execute true justice for you and I will come to you and I will lift you up and I will strengthen you with my power and I will give you rest and I will supply you with all of your needs and I will not abandon you and nothing you can do will separate yourself from me. And there is therefore now no condemnation. These are the kinds of things that Jesus would have said to her. And these are promises. These promises, they're available to us too. Caught in any one of those moments when we might have blown it. When we might have made some kind of choice or had a thought or said a word that we shouldn't have. We are not the sum of our worst choices. These promises are true for us. I added to my family in a kind of an unusual way. We have a bunch of adopted children. And one of my children, we adopted him when he was age 12. And he had never had a family like ours before. And he came into our family from another country in June. And he thought everything about the United States was kind of weird, right? He didn't, he didn't understand the language or the food or, or the media or, I mean, nothing. It all seemed kind of weird to him or the weather The one place where everything, the world was right again for him and he felt at home was on the soccer field. That was a a place that got carried over from his old life into his new life. So we put him on the seventh grade soccer team of King's Junior High. And about a month into school, he didn't have a phone yet. He wasn't ready for that kind of technology. About a month into school, I got a text from a number I didn't recognize. I just assumed it was someone on his team who told me that Tyler had left his soccer shoes at home and could I bring him up to the school. So I left work and I went home and I saw them. They were in a bag right by the back door and I grabbed them and I drove over to his school and it was after school at this point. So he was in like an athletic study hall before the game. And I went into the study hall and I found him. I'm like, hey, buddy, here's your shoes. You forgot them at home. And he looked at me and he's like, it worked. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, I told my friends I couldn't play in the game tonight because I forgot my shoes. And one of them said, 
don't you have a mom? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, well, she'll bring them to you. He's like, I didn't know, I didn't know how, this, how this works. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is definitely how this works, right? Like, like we bring lunch and homework and soccer shoes. Like, this is definitely how this works. At this point, he had been in my family for four months. He had all the rights and privileges of being my kid, but he didn't understand that this is how this works. In the same way, we can be in this God family and there's all kinds of rights and privileges that come with it and we cannot understand this is how this works. That was eight years ago and Tyler's still learning what it means to have the right and privilege of a permanent child of our family. I don't know where you are in the journey, but I want to make sure that you hear us say very clearly today from this church, this is how it works. He has compassion on you. He will come to you. He will lift you up. He will make you a home. He wants to be your dad. He wants to strengthen you and give you rest and supply you with your needs. He wants to never abandon you. He will never separate himself from you. He says to you, there is therefore now no condemnation. You are not the sum of your worst choices. I want to invite Kenny and the band to come back up here as we finish out this passage. It says in verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She's like, not one. And Jesus said to her, then neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And we can think to ourselves on any given day, we are out of the story. If, if, if you only knew what I did, I'm disqualified. I have uh, this, the choice I made, I'm literally paralyzed with shame because of it. But he's not stuck in any given chapter. He's, we, we, we don't have to feel stuck. He's looking at our whole life at one time. And God has written good stories still for us, right? We're not the sum of our worst mistakes. He sees what's to come, and he wants to remind you this morning what you are capable of. And just one little P.S. church before we play this music. Not only is this message true for you, but if we identify ourselves as part of God's family, then we need to look like this to a world who doesn't see this right now. We need to be grace givers in the same way we have been grace receivers. We need to come into those kind of moments with put our stones down. Be wise enough to realize we, have, we ourselves are recipients of that kind of lavish, incredible grace. We're not going to cancel you. We're not going to throw you away. We're not going to separate from ourselves from you. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to shake our fingers or our heads at you. We're going to tell you, welcome. Welcome into this family. He's crazy about you. Thank you.